Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. We started the Sendcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. Yes, there is lots of stuff you can go and read, but we're all really busy and we do not have the time. Everyone working in schools needs training to support pupils around SEND, but the funding isn't there to achieve this. We created the Sendcast to try and help solve that problem, to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND, and to help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest on that has come along to talk about an area they are passionate about. And my guest this week is Joanna Grace. Joanna is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist, and today we're discussing sensory development and sensory engagement. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Square, and over the last 25 years, we have supported schools to support students with SEND. But over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus, but we now have our online CPD offering, Training for Education. This started two years ago with the Virtual Send Conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, which is www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing sensory development and sensory engagement. Discussing this topic with me is Joanna Grace. Joanna is a sensory engagement and inclusion specialist, doctoral researcher, author, trainer, TEDx speaker, and founder of The Sensory Projects. Joanna has worked with people with learning disabilities and neurodivergent conditions aged from birth to 87. Welcome to the show, Joanna. Hello. I realise that 87 is very specific, isn't it? It's a particular person I'm thinking of. It's almost like Lego, birth to 99 or something. It's like... Yeah, and then you must stop playing with it. I don't I don't work with people older than 87. I would never... That's my cut-off point. That's my limit. Yeah, somebody who's going, oh, I want to work with Joanna, and the drop-down box just goes down to age 87. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> anyway, back on topic. Um, senses. I, I think most people take senses for granted and don't understand their complexity because we do. We just sit there and go, you see, you hear, you taste, you smell, you know where you are. And that's it. You just assume everyone's the same. Yeah. So most people go for the famous five, don't they? And then within education, we're quite good now at knowing about proprioception and vestibulation and interoception. But there's, there's still more. Once you start thinking about the subconscious senses, it's like gateway drugs and it's very easy to slide into more. So you have 33 sets of neurons that control your senses. So arguably you've got 33 senses. And some of the others that are interesting to think about in an education context would be things like chromioception, which is your sense of time, which I think when you say to somebody a sense of time, people know, oh, yeah, yeah, like it's like how much as five minutes is. or But actually, it is a sensory system that gives you that how muchness your five minutes are. And so if you have an impairment to that sensory system, some and somebody says to you, oh, we'll do that later, or we'll do that next, and you haven't sort of got the sense that perceives later or next or soon or not now or wait, it makes it much harder for you. You've just explained my daughter. <laughs> 
She was like, when are we going? It's like an hour and a half. She goes, cool. Five minutes later. When are we going? <laughs> and, yeah, but has it not been an hour and a half yet? I'm going, no, it's been five minutes. Yeah, if, if you don't have that sense of, of how muchness time is, then all of those sorts of things cause issues. Yeah, it's just fascinating because it really winds me up. She'll go, can we do this? I'll say, yeah, I'll do it in 15 minutes. And then within five minutes, has it been 15 minutes yet? And it's like, surely you can look at a clock. I, I have a range of egg timers on my shelf over there, little rainbow-coloured egg timers. And you just need the 15-minute one and then go, there you go. But yeah, I'll literally say to her, why don't you just set a timer so you know, but she won't do any of these little things to help her. No, she'll just keep asking me. <laughs> but yeah, senses, you just, you do just, the sense of time, I didn't even realise that was a sense. Yeah, and your sense of temperature is another one. But, you know, you could think of all these different sensory systems. And I think in the, in the intro, you said we were talking about sensory engagement. So a lot of my work is looking at how we get people interested in the sensations that they're having. And those tend to be people with very complicated brains. So people with profound disabilities or later stage dementia who are struggling to get that information from the sensory world. But a lot of times when it comes up for discussion within education settings, it's because sensory processing is happening in a different way. So there's sort of two topics there. There's how you get somebody interested in their senses and why their senses might be telling them something different to what, like you've just said with your daughter, your daughter's sense of time is obviously running differently to your sense of time. And that's causing issues and where we have these mismatches with how our sensory perceptions are working, it causes little flare ups of stress and things. It does. And I think if I just assumed you, like, like sight, you saw it went in, you, that's all it was. But there is so much which goes on between what your nerve takes in and what your brain creates or sees. It gets really excitingly complicated because the scienciness of sight is that light bounces off the objects around us, comes into our eyes, hits our retina. Information is picked up by our retina that is sent to our brain and our brain you know, processes that information and that is seeing. But if you think about how a video camera works, light goes into a video camera it bounces off some little part at the back of it. It goes into a digital little mind. It's recording visual information, but you would never describe a video camera as seeing. So there is, there's an element of sight that is the conscious act of seeing over just the data processing of the light coming in and the, and the brain making sense of it. And then all the differences. So for the people who I work on behalf of for most of my work, people with profound and multiple learning disabilities or profound intellectual and multiple disabilities, depending on where you are in the world, they can have eyes that work. So the light comes in, it bounces off the retina, the messages get sent to the brain. But if your brain doesn't understand those messages, you, you can't see. And people tend to think of people being blind because their eyes don't work. You know, if I was going to poke myself in the eye then, which is not helpful because one, we're on radio and it's just generally not helpful in life to poke yourself in the eye. But if, if your eyeball doesn't work, then you can't see. It, you know, it's like leaving the lens cap on the video camera. It's not going to work. It doesn't matter how great the little brain inside. But most of your vision is backstage in the brain. So it's about 
25% receiving the information from the world, 75% backstage processing. And so for the people I work on behalf of, if their brains can't process that information, you're, you're scuppered. But if your brain is still learning to process that information, then we've got a start point because then we're thinking developmentally and we could look at things that we would do to make seeing easier for you. And you think of seeing as being, you know, you open your eyes and you're seeing, you close your eyes and you're not seeing. But not all seeing is equal. Some things are easier to see than other things. Some sight information is easier for the brain to understand than other information. And so if you have a, a gauge of that, then you can start off with people who are just learning to see in terms of their learning to use the backstage bits in their brain. You can offer them the easy stuff first, which is what you do with any sort of education, isn't it? You, you do the easy stuff first and then you build up some more complicated stuff. But that learning to see is um, my daughter, one of my daughters when she was young, it's a standard thing. The, the skin on the nose, the bridge of the nose hadn't come out. So there was extra skin. So when you look at her, there was less white of the eye between her eyes and the nose, which made it look like she was cross-eyed because there was more white on the outside than there was on the inside. So you took that she was looking in, she was cross-eyed. Okay, oh, that's not right. And we made some calls and um, went to see a specialist. They go, we're going to give her an eye test. And I'm going, well, she, she's like three, six months old, however long. How is she going to do an eye test? She's not going to be sitting there going P I R A. She can't do that. How? And they had these um, pieces of glass where if you could focus on it correctly, it would look like a 3D shape. So it was bits on the front, bits on the back, and they held it up. And if she went to grab it, then her eyes were perfectly aligned and she could see it was a ball and would go and grab it. If they weren't aligned, if she was cross-eyed or, or whatever and couldn't focus correctly, she wouldn't see it as a 3D shape and she wouldn't grab it. And it was like, wow. It's an interesting one that you say, you know, if she can't read the, the letter chart, how can she have an eye test? Because and I'm, I'm kicking myself for not knowing the statistics, but the number of children with learning disabilities who require glasses is insert the relevant big statistic here it's something like you know 84 percent, 75 percent. it's like a significant number but if you go into special schools and look at how many children are wearing glasses you won't find the equivalent matching number wearing glasses because they don't have access to eye tests and there is a fantastic charity called seeability who will um explain so much better than me why it is totally possible to give anybody an eye test and, and everybody should be getting their eyes tested. But those sorts of things, that's the, that's the first part, isn't it? That's the 25%. Like, and we're quite good at that. We understand, oh, they need glasses to make the light come in at the right angle, or they need biofocals or something like that. We know less about what to do when it's a backstage processing in the brain thing. But actually, your experience with your daughter when she was very little is probably the first clue in that it's the first place where the general population recognise that your sensory capacities are learned. You're not born able to just see everything. Because when we have a little baby, we give them black and white picture books and we give them high contrast things because we recognise that they're not at the same level of sight as us. 
you you're, you're suddenly in this world, you know, your eyes are open, all this information is coming in, and your brain has never met it before. And it's just going, yeah, goodness, what does, what does this all mean? And it's much easier to understand this is black, and this is white, than it is to understand, you know, this is peach, and this is lemon yellow, or I've just painted my house, so I can tell you all the paint colours. So we start off with those little black and white picture books for babies. And some of the people that I work on behalf of lead their whole lives in those early stages of sensory development. And so to give a sort of really simple example, if I had one of those black and white pitch books or I had, you know, just a regular pitch book, it might be that they could see one of them and not the other. And so they're being offered visual experiences because we know um, in the world of special education that it's great to offer sensory experiences. So these people with the complex disabilities will be having all manner of things you know, dangled in front of them and shown to them. But actually, only some of them are things that they can see. <laughs> and if we figure out which ones they are most able to see, we can start with those. And then it's the same as any curriculum. So I always think of it as being like the maths curriculum. And I think that just probably says more about me than it says about the actual topic. <laughs> but I did too much maths in, in my youth. But if I was going to teach you maths, I would start with experiences of one and many, and then we do counting, and then we do adding, and then we do, you know, we, we, I can carry on all the way up until the stuff where you're not using numbers anymore. And so the black and white picture books is kind of the sensory equivalent of one and many. And then you need to know what's the next, because your little daughter, when she's small, she'll see the black and white picture books and, you know, give her a couple of weeks and she'll have finished the whole site curriculum. But other people are still working through it. And if you've got something that they can do, you want to know what's next along that line so that you offer them that opportunity too. Because it's back to the maths. You know, if I taught you to count, I wouldn't go, oh, brilliant, you've learned to count to 10. Let's count to 10 again, shall we? Shall we count to 10 again? I've got another set of things that we could count to 10 again. And <laughs> what I find sometimes is within the sensory work that's done with people with complex disabilities, Quite often, the way we measure success is whether we get a reaction to it. So we'll go, oh, look, they're engaged. Look, they're looking. Isn't this great? And it is because it, it means you're showing them something that they can see and they're interested and all of that's great. But if you are also going, yeah, you can count to 10. Would you like to count to 10 again? Let's count to 10 again. After a while, it's going to get boring for them, isn't it? And you would always want to go, well, if you can count to 10, do you want to try this adding? You know, adding's good. And maybe they can add and maybe they can't. And if they can't, then fine, carry on counting to 10. But you always want to give that next opportunity along. And when you flip the maths example back to sight, what you're doing by being really careful which experiences you choose and by offering those next ones is you're, you are literally increasing their capacity to see. So you are you know, if if you do that moving along that scale, you are gifting them more of the visual world. And if all you ever do is just go, algebra, 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 you know, this colourful chaos of the whole visual world, which is amazing, if they can't see it, if they can't process it, it's it's pointless. It's they might as well be blind. So knowing that lineage is is a really useful thing. So I remember I I literally had forgotten about the black and white books. And also it was, they can only see uh, two foot or so when they're young. I can't remember the measurement, but they can't see very far. So you're doing something on the other side of the room. They could be looking at you, but they can't see you. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you generally, I find with people with complex needs, they have a zone of engagement that's very close to their body. So you, you come into about their elbow lengths away from them. And that's where this is obviously not everybody. That would just be my best bet. If I just met somebody fresh, I would get that close and I would try and offer experiences from the early development of the senses. And then, you know, I'd, I'd notice where along I got to and, and focus on there. It's just a fact, because, yeah, you just you see. But it is, if we go back to that distance, and there is, I suppose, recognising, as a, a joke in a film, it's like, the horse, it was only an inch tall. No, no, that was just a horse which was far away. Yeah. <laughs> There's that understanding. Really yeah, you, you, you only understand that when that horse gets a lot closer and you're going, oh, it's a, it is a horse. It was just that you learn that it's you don't just get that from the start do you no no um in to make it i'm not sure if it's too com, not confusing but if it's unnecessarily complicated but within the education system of children with special needs we tend to still be running very behaviorist approaches and behaviorism is a philosophy that is based on in hard sciences it's based on the idea that everything is cause and effect and if you train somebody to it's like it's all dog training is behaviorism isn't it you know you do the thing you get a treat that makes you want to do the thing you do the thing you get a treat it makes you want to do the thing and it's that sort of reinforcement cycle and if you were trying to get somebody to engage at a sensory level a behaviorist approach to that is is going to have very little impact if what's going on is a processing and you know access issue you could you could say you know look at the lights well done you looked at the lights have a have a chocolate chip or something <laughs> and you're not going to get very far whereas thinking about it developmentally is more of a cognitivist approach and that's the idea that it's all to do with your cognition and your brain and your thinking so it's the explanation that I gave at the start about that your brain might be developing at a slower rate or in a different way to somebody and so then that lineage of the development of the senses makes sense but there are other I think of these things as like pairs of glasses so you put on your behaviorism glasses and you think right I will give you a reward I will make you a star chart here you go we're gonna we're gonna learn this skill you put on your cognitivist glasses you go oh, you're at this developmental level you need to go there's loads of pairs of these glasses you yeah, there's there's so many more that you could put on and then each one each set that you put on makes you think something different about how you would approach things so it's always worth I think it's just worth knowing like what glasses you're wearing as you do this stuff there's a whole podcast on glasses there <laughs> oh it would be a dull podcast I mean no it'd be really interesting it's, I find it very interesting but I know that it's quite niche but I think when we think of development we're thinking, we often think, what did I do? What were my stages? What would help me? And generally, people have that reflecting on their experiences or what they would like. And especially if you're a, you're a neurotypical and that person is neurodiverse, that doesn't work. And if you are processing everything correctly and you're seeing and you're processing and understanding and that person's not, and there's a bit of it missing, what works for you won't work for them. So you can't use your past experiences and you have to find a different way. Yeah, so that's where my cognitive 
this pair of glasses falls down because in that explanation that I give which I do not retract because I still think it's useful so that development of the senses that I was talking about is what I wrote about in my book sensory being for sensory beings and it's what the course develop your sensory lexiconry is about and that goes through each of the I was going to say all of the senses but it's clearly not all of the senses I don't do 33 <laughs> I do seven and then on the super lex I I throw in some extra ones but that just goes through you know you start with black and white for sight and then you go on to this and on to this and on to this that's assuming a, a typical development and for people with complex disabilities it, it's not that um it's going to be completely atypical but you've got a very complicated brain there and just to assume that they are like a normal brain in slow motion would be erroneous you know there's other things going on there's epilepsy firing in there there's there's little bends and hooks and things and it won't necessarily work but we haven't got a mapping of their brain so we might as well go with our broad mapping of what we know about how you access the sensory world and see if that's useful but don't just assume it's going to just bolt straight on to a brain that is significantly different to yours and then if you were talking about neurodivergent people and neurotypical people, it was interesting that you said that one set was sensing the world correctly. <laughs> we all presume we sense the world correctly yeah, until absolutely. we find out we don't. Yeah, I, I, so, I so get that because I've been working as a sensory engagement specialist who knows about this stuff, you know, to a reasonable level, to a professional level for more than 20 years now. and. Um, ever since I was sort of um, first doing it um, publicly, it wasn't like a private bedroom activity before, but it was, you know, it got more public. <laughs> People say to me, oh, have you got any sensory differences, Joe? And I've gone, no, no. I, of course, sense the world normally. Are we all just, that's, and then I realised after I was diagnosed as autistic and not even at diagnosis did I realise this, but a good sort of year or so later, I have very significant visual processing differences to the majority of the population. But even as a sensory engagement specialist, I'd never questioned it. No, of course, everybody sees like me. Everybody hears like me. That's what we all think. It was interesting. I, I find I notice a lot more than anyone else around me. I'll be walking along and I'll just, oh, have you seen that? Like, what? That person? What person? And I'll clock them a mile away. And they just, something stood out on them. And I was like, oh, what's that? And I just seem more observant. Yeah, so I can explain that from a neurodivergent, neurotypical sight point of view. And it's, this, it's the same for me. Um, and although I said I only recognise the sensory differences you know, a few years ago, I've always known them. So um, to give you an example, I remember um, my at my junior school, when it was the summer, we were allowed onto the field at playtime. And the field was this big field out the back of the school. And I wasn't very good at playing with the other children. So I used to stand near the dinner ladies, but not so close to them that they told you to go and play. Because if you stand too close, they, they, you can hear their chats, then they send you off to play. So, so just close enough that you don't get picked on. So I'd be standing there and I remember a boy coming up to the dinner lady crying because he'd lost the little metal pin that held his watch strap on 
and he'd been out across the field playing football and he was very upset because the watch was a gift and all of this and I was just standing there and I thought well I can I can find that and I walked out over the field picked it up and brought it back to the dinner lady and I knew that I would be able to see it I can see a little sort of one centimeter metal pin in a whole field of grass amongst all the children playing there's no question in my mind that I would just be able you, you know it's, it's on the field I'd go and pick it up you know like if a cup was on the table and you just go and pick it up it's it's nothing of course um but a lot of autistic people see in it's like seeing in high definition you see in greater detail than a neurotypical person would and you actually do more seeing which sounds like a strange thing to say but a really good analogy for it is the old um television sets do you remember when you had the big cathode ray yeah because Dale is as old as me <laughs> when you had the big cathode ray tube sets you'd be able to see like a little flicker go across the screen like it's reading the screen and um, the way that they used to update the pictures was they would scan all the pixels in order like reading down a page and check you know does this pixel need to change color does this pixel need to, and then update the ones that do so it would read the whole screen and if you had a really fancy telly it would read it really quickly um, and the modern sets don't do that. If you've got a digital television, a little thin one, they just project an image and then they know which pixels need to move and they only move those pixels. So they don't have to read the whole screen all the time. They just put the image up and then they just bother with the ones that change. And that's a really good analogy for neurotypical sight compared to neurodivergent sight. Or I'm speaking from an autistic point of view, so I, I I can't speak with confidence about other neurodivergences, but it sounds plausible, um, is that if you are neurotypical, you will take an image of a room, especially if it's a room that you know, like your living room or the, the rooms that you work in, and you just have a kind of static image, and then you only bother with energy and attention to the bits that move or to the bits that change. And you get these wonderful tricks where people get invited around to a friend's house for dinner and they film them, and they film the martyrs, and they say, oh, did you notice the big gorilla? And they're like, what? No, I didn't see a big gorilla. Oh, there was a big gorilla, didn't you notice? No, I would have seen if there was a big gorilla. I would, you know, I've had a lovely lunch with Janice, and we had a really nice time, and there was not, and then they show them the video footage, and there's a huge poster of the gorilla on the wall, and because it's a familiar city, situation, they've walked into that room, they've used their image that they have of that room they've only looked at the things that move and change and so you can hide a huge poster of a gorilla from a neurotypical person in sight whereas you could never hide it from an autistic person because they scan every bit every time they see everything all the time every time and so your vision is a third of your cerebral cortex so it's a huge amount of effort on your brain the exhaustion of doing that much seeing and I'm in quite a few Facebook forums for families who've got autistic children and it's really common for me to see posts from parents who are at their wits end because their young person keeps pulling everything apart and and there was one just recently and she said he pulls all the pictures down off the walls and then he throws all the sofa cushions away and and I just want to have, you know, a nice house. I've worked really hard and I just want, I just want the house to be nice. And I, it was interesting. You think if he had been a, a typical kid who wanted to be naughty, which is not a thing that typical children think, by the way, before anybody gets me for like, oh, they want to be naughty. 
all behavior is communication but if, if he'd been a typical child with some communicative reason to be doing these things he probably would have gone for something that he's not allowed to touch you know or the only grown-ups were like he's never going to have been interested in the pictures is he he's like he wouldn't even notice the pictures and what this kid was doing was attacking the visual clutter in that room. He was getting the pictures off the wall. He was getting the sofa cushions off the sofa. He was trying to make it a simpler landscape. Um, and he, he's, he would be, what, three? And it just seems like a tantrum. But to, to me, as an adult who's able to articulate these things, you think, oh, I get that so much. I, I, would, I would want to do and And it's funny because... We're on video as we chat to each other. And you can see me sitting here in this lovely blank room <laughs> that is my work environment because I wouldn't want to try and deal with visual clutter whilst I was working. And then you think about your general classroom and the level of visual clutter and what you're asking differently sighted people to endure in those spaces. It's definitely, but yeah, this whole sight thing, we do sight a lot and as you said, there's different levels of seeing and understanding. Because at some point, if we go back to things like maths, is you're reading symbols in the environment type thing. You're like, oh, that's McDonald's. Everyone knows McDonald's arches. But you talked about with maths the difference between one and many. How do you teach someone one and many? Through experience, through lots of experience. Through the senses. Yeah. You either yeah, you either see this is one grain of sand, this is lots, or if you can't see, you might drop um like a like a bean, and then you drop lots of beans, or you're you're feeling one thing, or you're putting your hand you you take in those senses. So for from the first part of maths is you've got to use a sense to understand the difference between this is one and this is many. So if you're struggling with your senses. Yeah, your sensory processing, your ability to process the sensory world is underpinning to all of your access to education and learning. And it also fundamentally underpins the wiring of your brain. So we we learned from the Romanian orphanage studies how sensory stimulation in early development affects your cognitive capacity. I feel like I mangled that sentence. Um, I started with the Romanian orphans too soon. So your ability to access the sensory world is critical to your ability to lay down neural pathways. If you think about, um, if you imagine the early brain as a densely overgrown forest, when you have a sensory experience, what happens is it sends a little electronic pulse through your neural synapses. Those synapses might meet and connect and a little trace would be left in the brain. And through time with repetition, those traces become established neural pathways. That's like the science bit from a shampoo ad. If you, if you go back, if you imagine it as a densely overgrown forest, when you have a sensory experience, that sends somebody walking through the forest. And so if it just happens once, the forest is basically the same, you know, a few bent over blades of grass, but it's that's the neural trace. You want repeated experience. Somebody walks that pathway again, they walk it again and again and again. And through time with repetition of those experiences, what was a few bent over blades of grass becomes a little muddy track, becomes a road, you know, becomes a super, becomes an established neural pathway in the brain. 
And in your early life, the more opportunities you have to have sensory experiences and to repeat those experiences, the more pathways go through your brain. And you can see it in the photos of neuronal development. It's it's just spectacularly similar to like if I took a photo of that forest from on top and showed you where the pathways went, the early brain would just have a few, you know, not getting very far. And then by the time you're, you know, one year old, you'd have a whole bunch of them going all over the forest. By the time you're two, pretty much the whole forest is pathways. And you think about it, if you want to navigate from one side of the forest to the other, in the totally overgrown forest of the early brain, you're going to really struggle to get there, because there's no pathways, you don't know where to go. But by the time you're two, and everything is pathways, and you want to navigate from point A to point B, it's still really difficult, because you could go down any one of these roads, you don't you don't know where to go. And the photo of the two-year-old's brain in terms of neuronal pathways is just a picture of the terrible twos, because it's a nightmarish brain to live in. Everything goes off in every, just, just so much noise in that head. And so what your brain does from age two to age six is it takes an audit of which pathways are most traveled and it lets the others grow over. So the forest analogy is perfect because just like in the forest, if you were to stop using a track, it would in time grow over. So the same is true for your brain and the neurons. And so by the time you're six, you have a brain that is bespoke to your early sensory environment. So that old phrase, take a child until he's seven and I'll show you the man is, is really apt. Like you could do it probably by the time they're six. And so your, your head is always set for wherever those years were spent. And when I work with people with later stage dementia, I'm always interested to find out where they were when they were that age, because that's where their brain will feel at home. And so for me, I grew up on a concrete boat at sea. So my brain is wired for big ocean horizons and the cry of the gulls and things like that. And I would I enjoy going to London and I spend quite a lot of nights in London with my work and traveling. And it's fun and it's exciting. And it's always a bit noisy and it's a bit busy and a bit flashy and we're just recording at the end of the Easter holidays and I live in rural Cornwall so for the last couple of weeks I've seen all the people from London who are down in Cornwall to have some nice peace and quiet and to get away from it all and they come down and they sit on our you know beautiful sandy empty beaches or walk across the wild rolling hills and and there's some part of them that's like this is lovely this is really beautiful but I wonder if there's a like a club open or if there's a bar or if I need a bit more because there's not enough happening here. It needs to be as, you know, the home for my brain. When we before we started recording, I talked about me relaxing and sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> That's that sort of thing, isn't it? It is you, you like being out on I've, I've sailed as well. My dad's got a boat. So I've used to come down to your neck of the woods and charter a boat off me. And it is really relaxing because it's you, the wind and the waves and nothing. And it is just peaceful. But I also love London. But I like them equally. Yeah. But they're very different. But if we if we go to that senses is, so birth to two, you're creating the pathways. Yeah. So and if, if you, you have... Spend- some of that time in, so some of the people that I work with have spent that time in ICU and have had a limited set of exposure and then you don't get to put those pathways down. 
you're basically working with what you've got by the time you're two. And I, I mentioned the remaining orphans and I didn't come back to them. We the we're old enough to remember when they opened the orphanages in Romania in the 80s and we met a generation of children who because of the political circumstances at the time in that country had had to be put into state-run institutions because their families hadn't got the um, means to care for them and those institutions were horrific places where multiple children were kept in a single cot and and nothing happened and we have you would never put people in that situation in order to test things on them but because they were so deprived they've made a very interesting group for researchers and there's been follow-up studies done on those orphans you know 20 years on and 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 so on and we learned from those studies that that critical period if you miss out on stimulation during that critical period which is about not to you can't ever make up for it you know, if you don't put those pathways down, they're not there. And so those children are profoundly cognitively disabled, not because they were born disabled, not because there is anything wrong with their brains, but because they didn't get the chance to put the pathways in. Once you've got to two and you've got all those pathways, then you prune away. And so what they found was that if they'd been put into those institutions during the not so critical time, they would be cognitively behind because they haven't had the chance to do that pruning and to work it out but they could it's you know they could theoretically catch up although you could have always had sort of six more years worth of stimulation and that stimulation is valuable at a cognitive level so that's really my question is if at two years old you haven't done it is it a case of it's delayed but no it is you've basically got a two-year cut off yeah but the next question was is that pruning in theory, happens a bit. In theory, that sometimes that pruning gets delayed. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that we know about the differences in autistic brains, because autism is such a fascinating thing to study, because it's sort of it's clear that it's a thing. You know, there are people who are autistic, and there are people who are not autistic, and then they go, okay, well, what is this thing? And I saw a, a doctor who's a researcher in this, or she's a professor. She said, the thing we know about autistic brains is that they are unique. Like when they do a study of neurotypical brains, they like assess how much gray matter is in a neurotypical brain or how cross-referenced a neurotypical brain is. The neurotypical brains all come out about the same. Like It's like a hominid, let's take a run up at that word. I don't think I can do it now. <laughs> homogeneity that's it if you say it quick i i was i was not even going to attempt that word (laughs) sameness there's a sameness to neurotypical brains and then if you do the sort of partnered studies so say they've looked at how much gray matter is in the neurotypical brains they go it's about this much and then you do that partner study on the autistic brains what they'll get is that it will be different to the neurotypical brains but quite often it's different to each other as well they're these sort of spectacularly original brains so it's very difficult to make any general statements she says before making a general statement about autistic brains but (laughs) one of the things that's pretty much um known is that then they've got more cross references so there's more cross connections so it's a bit like the, the pathways in the brain analogy that we were just using there's more paths and so if there's more paths and you send a piece of information down one path and it meets you know, a crossroad with five forks, that little bit of information goes five ways and it makes more noise in your brain. And it's the reason why 
something like a shopping centre would be very overwhelming because if you're going through that shopping centre and the information that it gives you goes down one path and gets to the other end of it, nice, nice and simply, that's fine. If it goes down that path and fractures five ways, it's it's five times as bright to you, five times as loud to you. Um, but it's also flip it into another situation and it becomes the reason why these brains are so brilliant. So it won't surprise you to know <laughs> that I know quite a few um, physicists and people who work professionally within science and maths, <laughs> like top level geeks. And they have those brains. They totally have those brains. And those brains are really good at spotting the detail in the experiments that they run and watching these patterns and and all and, and used in context capacity and context in one context it's a superpower in another context it's a wipeout well let's go back to that filtering so everyone does it you'll be walk let's go back up to london you're walking across a bridge in london you know where you're going and generally or everything else you just kind of filter out you know where you're going or you're looking at the buses nothing else you, you can just filter down to what you want and with your hearing there's all the noises and you can filter it all out and you just kind of hear the person you're talking to apart from if a motorbike goes past closely or someone's loud suddenly but you can your head can filter all of this out and that's not something it can do again, from birth, that's something you're learning to do. You're learning to kind of like where you can focus your eyes, your ears can focus. And it's the whole hierarchy of what's important to me, what's important in this situation. Um, are there any dangers? All this processing you're going, is going on in every sense. And, and that's part of that 75%. Yeah, absolutely. And that really kicks in with sensory processing disorder and sensory processing disabilities. So I've talked so far about people with profound intellectual disabilities who've got these complicated brains. And I've talked about autistic people and neurodivergent people who've got brains that are differently wired. Sensory processing disorder or sensory processing differences would massively overlap both those populations. So I'd expect most people who are autistic to have some degree of sensory processing difficulties. And I would expect most people who've got profound intellectual disabilities to have some degree of sensory processing difficulties. But they're not um, synonymous with those things. You can just have sensory processing disabilities or differences as a standalone thing. You don't have to have profound disabilities. You don't have to be autistic. You can just have it pure and simple on its own and I suppose if you think about at the start we said about a video camera taking in light and the the you know whatever the gadgetry is in the back processing the information there is a feature on the camera that is the tuning in isn't it? the the focus those little twisty things that's where sensory processing disorder comes in it's the little twisty things so if you imagine that all of your senses have volume controls in your brain and what you're doing as you tune into the world or tune out is you're adjusting the volume controls on, on your different sensory systems. That skill of adjusting the volume control is a learned skill. And so when you're small, it, it's a perfect analogy. If you gave a small person, I've got a one-year-old, if I gave him a radio with a volume control on, and if I had any capacity to tell him that I wanted a particular volume, he would he would twist the knob so it was way too high. 
and then twist it way too low. It would, it would wonk all over the place before he got to the volume that he was aiming for. And when you're small, that's what's happening with your senses. You're trying to twist. You're trying to figure out which thing you attend to and, and how you control all of these different dials. And when you're older, you've developed that skill. So I know I'm coming back to talk to you in a bit about um, eating and the senses. And it's one of the situations where this is a really important skill because the sound of yourself eating is one of the sounds that you learn to tune out very quickly. And people think that they don't hear it. They, they hear other people when they eat with their mouths open, those bad people eating with their mouths open, but they don't hear themselves eating. But you think about it, your mouth is right by your ear. Like, of course you hear it. You just, you've just learned to tune it out. And so that tuning is a very skilled thing because you're not just tuning out sound in order to look you're tuning out particular parts of sound. So it's a very detailed skill um, and people can have differences with it. So either you can have not gained that skill yet. So that's us with our cognitivist lenses on thinking developmentally. You haven't, you haven't, you know, got the hang of that. You've learned it slower than somebody else might. You need longer to learn it. You need more practice and approaches that, um, look at this will offer children the opportunity to have sensory experiences repeatedly so that they can practice this tuning in and then you would hope to see better and better tuning and then presumably a cure <laughs> um, sometimes it's not respected that there's also a disability so I've been saying sensory processing disorder or sensory processing differences, or you know, sensory processing disability, or sensory processing differences. And so, my differences would be the people who've not yet learned how to control their volume. A disability, your volume control is broken. I don't care how much you learn about how to use it; it's broken, and and you can't overcome that. The brain is a very neuroplastic thing, so it's you can't just go total. You can't, but more or less. You can't. If if your volume controls are broken, offering that chance to practice and rehearse and to practice and rehearse can be cruel. Because if that's an experience that they find difficult and it's not achieving anything, it's not making it any easier for them, you're, you're just being mean. You are. I, I, I like this analogy, analogy using cameras. Because if we think of cameras years ago, they were fully manual. You had to manually do your focus and your aperture and or shutter speed. And then they worked out to automate that. And it wasn't perfect. But then they brought in these programs, well, this what settings for landscape, where we take in this priority and this one's for sports. We take it and they have that. And then digital cameras came along and they could store a couple of photos. And then the SD card can now store lots of information. But if we think of going onto your phone, the cameras have got better and then they started doing face recognition. So the, so that, that's, and again, that's one of your background processes. The camera's been able to see faces for years, but now they finally been able to go, if it's like this, this is a face. And they've started to recognize faces. And now you've got portrait mode. So we talked about focus. So you've got that, um, Adam Bocker, I think is the correct term, which where it um, makes the background blurry. So again, that's you focusing on what's important. You go to portrait mode, take a picture of Joe. Joe's perfectly in focus. Everything behind it goes blurred. And again, that's your head deciding what's important. And it's taken us years to teach 
these devices to be able to do this? Yeah, I was a bit worried then that your camera knowledge was going to exceed my <laughs> sensory knowledge. But the one about face recognition is a really good one because we are born with, I think we're born with around 100 reflexes, like the grab reflex, you know, little baby's fists are grabbed up and the reflex to breathe and to blink and things like that. Apparently you can hang a newborn baby on a washing line because the grab reflex is so strong. I really wanted to try that, but there were no washing lines handy when I had my babies. Um, most of those reflexes wear off within the first six months of life. So um, little babies will hold on to your finger whilst they're small, but then their hands open up to explore the world. Some of the people with complex disabilities that I work on behalf of are still in that pre-reflexive grab. You know, their, their fists are still balled up. And so it can be interesting to look at how you develop from there. But some of those reflexes stay with us. And one of the reflexes that stays with us is there's a reflex in the lens of your eyes for faces. So your eyes will reflexively go to faces in the room. It's automatic. It's not a conscious thing. It's not a thought thing. You go to the faces in the room. And I use that when I'm trying to, you asked me earlier, how do you teach somebody one and many? Like when, when you're doing it at a sensory level, how am I going to show them, you know, this is black and this is white or because I need to get them to look first. And if, if they haven't learned to look yet, how, how do I get you to look first? Well, that's one of the tricks that I use is I use that reflex because I know it will ping the eyes to wherever I draw it to. And it's a reflex that's triggered by next to nothing. You know, two dots and a smiley drawn with a marker pen will trigger that reflex. So I've got resources that are my site engagement resources out in the shed, which is visually very different from this landscape. Um, that have just got smiley faces mark penned onto them because I get, you know, get the reflex of the eyes to the object with a smiley face. And then hopefully I give them an object that's visually accessible and then we can look at it and go, ooh, you know, that looks great. Um, the other population of people for whom that reflex is really relevant to is autistic people who find eye contact stressful or painful. There's a lot of um, autistic people report eye contact as painful and they still have that reflex. So your, your eyes automatically go to faces and then it becomes stressful for you. And I know of children who the school is being really accommodating. They really want to make them welcome and to include them. And so they'll be given like a little booth to work in in the classroom so that they can be with their peers. But they've got a little space that's, you know, visually not so cluttered, that's a bit more insulated, that's away from the noisiness. and and you know they're, they're doing their very best to accommodate that child but you're, you're still in a room that's got like 30 faces in it you're still going to have that stress even you know you just look over your shoulder and it's going to get like, boom, 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 like reflex 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 eyes 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 everywhere and and the faces on the wall all the photos on the wall all the pictures all the portraits on the wall if this is a very different visual landscape from you know if the pictures up on the wall were of cows and fields and things and there weren't that many people in the room as far as that whole facing i didn't realize it was an inbuilt reaction because there was a documentary i watched years ago where somebody just didn't recognize faces so she would obviously get drawn to it and go even fry doesn't recognize faces he's the famous one isn't he yeah who are you and they have to go i'm your husband oh you're my husband i know who you are now it's like he walks out the room walks back in again who are you it's your husband oh <laughs> I'm not so bad. I don't tend to recognise faces, but I don't think it's because I don't recognise faces. 
I think it's because I don't generally look at faces when I meet people. So because I don't generally, I'm not great at eye contact. I tend to chat to people at a sort of 45 degree angle from them. And so if people meet me at an event and they come up to me at the next event and when I talk to you about, I'll totally remember what we talked about. And I'll remember, you know, them as the person that talked to me about that. But I won't like, (laughs) I had a really bad experience recently. A really not bad experience but I, re- I was really gutted um there was a lady that I have worked with so she and I presented um at, at a conference together a few years ago and we sat at the same table and we had a chat um and I watched her presentation it was really interesting and I referred her on to somebody else so I, I, I properly met this lady I wasn't just like a passing glance I know her on Facebook so I regularly see pictures of what she's doing on Facebook and, and all of this and then I did an event a few weeks ago and I was the keynote speaker. And after I'd done my keynote, a couple of people came up and asked for selfies with me. And so I took these selfies with these people. <laughs> and when I got home, I saw one of these selfies in my Facebook newsfeed. And it was this lady who I knew. I completely know. I know exactly who she is. I know what she does. I knew that she was down for, you know, she's come to, I knew her daughter was getting married at the weekend. And and I hadn't noticed, I hadn't recognised her in the slightest when I met her. And the, and the punchline is she has purple hair, so she's not she's not she's not hard to recognise. And I totally hadn't processed it at all until I see her in the photo. You're like, oh, oh, if I'd known it was you, you should have told me. You should have told me that you knew me. Because once you tell me, then I'm fine. Maybe I am like that person. I find a lot of my memory is context based. So I'm at a show, I'll meet someone and I'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, education, education. I go somewhere completely different. I meet someone from education and I'm going, oh, I know you, I know you. And you have to go, and it's when you see them out of the zone or it's, or you see like a parent, you know, or a friend, one of your kids, you know, kids, friends, parents, and you go somewhere completely different. It's professional. You're going, I know that person. And it just takes me a while to go, ah, but it's, it's, they're out of context. You no, know, you shouldn't be here. You should be in the playground at the end of school. <laughs> we have, we often do. Um, but no, I found it really interesting again, as I always do learning from you. Um, yeah, the idea of senses. I, interesting that yeah, pathways created by two then filter out, but not everyone does. And again, the neurotyp- neurodiverse differences. That's quite interesting that not, not all the pathways disappear and you have the noise. That's quite an interesting idea. The other one, just before we wrap it up, that we haven't mentioned is that that development of knowing where a sensory system starts and what's its next thing. You like the maths version, what's the site equivalent of counting? What's the site equivalent of adding up? The same applies. What's the auditory equivalent of counting? What's the auditory equivalent of adding up? It's a useful lineage to know when you're doing the sensory detective work around people who process the sensory world differently. So if you've got somebody who's um, really reacting to certain noises and you're trying to work out why are they, why is it those noises? Quite often people go, well, he's quite happy to be loud himself, but he gets stressed when somebody else is loud or, you know, there's something and you can't figure out why it's that and not another thing. Knowing where it is on the development of the senses sometimes is a useful lens because you can go, ah, it's like it's the early developmental stuff that's really bothering him or it's the stuff from further on that's really bothering him. 
and then it makes sense of why it's one thing and not another just as a, like an extra tool in your detective kit my, my nephew had this thing where he would hate being like in a school hall where they're all singing or anything like that they'd go off to a carol concert and he'd be and they hated it but he'd happily go to manchester airport and all the planes take off over his head yeah so it's not volume it wasn't volume it was like it was probably overloading, but in that place he was happy. Whereas this bit, other things had fired off. I have no idea. It's it's you said at the start the senses are more complicated than we think. So that's an example, isn't it? When we think of sound, we think of it in terms of volume. That's the only dimension we give it. Is it loud or quiet? Do you like loud noises? Don't like loud noises. And actually, sound is an unusual one because I said sight's a third of your cerebral cortex. Sound is processed in lots of different places in your brain. So I'm, I'm sort of, She's I'm touching showing her head. It's here and it's here and it's here. It's it's all it's in all these different places and different types of sound are in different places in your brain. And so if you think that you might have like a lot of wiring in one place and not so much in another, then the type of sound that goes to the place where there's a lot of wiring is going to be a really big sort of sound to you. And the stuff that goes through the more calmly wired spot would be easier to process. And it's it's funny because when I was doing the research that underpinned the writing of sensory being for sensory beings, I was looking, I got curious about what all these different places are. And it's like different types of sound are in different places in the brain. And you don't need to know, you don't need to know coordinates of where in the brain sound is. You just need the idea of that there are types of sound. So like um, cutlery and keys jangling is a type of sound. And that's a different type of sound to language, which is a different type of sound to vacuum cleaners and car engines and things. So if you sort of begin thinking as types of sound, you can perceive that there are different types. And so somebody might respond to a particular type of sound. Just like um, language is a left brain linguistic response it's in the left hand side of your brain and swearing is not in the same place as language it's on the right hand side of your brain in its own little separate thing and it's a motor response so it it registers in the brain as a movement rather than as a as a as a as a language as a communicative act which makes sense of why when you stub your toe you go to swear and not to say because it's a movement you you stub your toe you physically pull your foot back and you physically you motorically swear <laughs> and you get these brilliant examples of like nuns who've lived an amazingly pious life and then then had a stroke that's affected the linguistic part of their brain and they've lost the ability to talk but regained the ability to swear <laughs> wow i had no idea about that fascinating because to me a lot of time um and i think it's quite is it this might be made up or not, but kind of a visual thing will have a feeling attached. Oh, okay. Oh, you, you're so right. So you see a picture of your granny, happy. See a picture of a, of, of a scary wolf, scared. And I, I think sometimes when you have sounds, they attach the same thing. So hearing the things, because keys jangling is completely random, whereas hooving in car engines is motorized repetitive predictable and their language is one thing and music's not I, I was yeah i was fascinated with that organization and it makes a lot of sense and anything predictive probably happy with anything like keys jangling so the stuff from early development so the hoovering and the car engines and all of that those are white noise sounds and they're basically your auditory equivalent of one and many so they're the equivalent to black and white in the visual landscape, they're your start point to sound. 
And if you think when you have a little baby, we do exactly the same thing. We give them those white noises. We go shh, shh, and they fall asleep when you're hoovering or when you put them in the car and take them out. So it's white noise is the, is the first sound that you can successfully process. And that's because you had practice before you were born of processing white noise because the fluids in the womb are a white noise sound. So you're, you've already you know, learned how to do that before you're born. And those um, experiences that we learn to process first, they're the first pathways through that forest. So they're very quickly the most established pathways. And it is always easier to walk down the established pathway than it is to walk down the one that's still got brambles growing across it and things like that. So because it's easier to go down it, you're more likely to rehearse it again, which means it's more likely to become established and you know, it's a secure position. It means that that information comes through to the brain really easily and really clearly. And that can mean that it's particularly loud to the brain. So if you were somebody who struggled with sound and this this noise comes through really easily, you might be really bothered by it. Or because you can access that stimulation so easily, you, like, you don't even need to try. You just glide down that pathway because there's nothing in your way. You don't, you don't have to hack down branches. You don't have to jump over path. You just walk down that path. Easy. It's so relaxing for your brain because your brain is seeking this stimulation. So those early developmental experiences are like the sensory equivalent of bad television for the brain. We were talking about relaxing to watching bad television. It, your brain can just sit there and go, uh, <laughs> and then it gets this stimulation. And so when you're working with children in nurture groups, for example, or children who are going through stressful times or people who are feeling anxious, having environments that are rich in early developmental sensory experiences can be really calming and reassuring and grounding to those people. So it's another set of people for whom knowing those sensory lineages can be really useful. Wow. I'm, I'm still stuck on the swearing as the right-hand side of the brain and not in language. That's... <laughs> Yeah, I read that and I thought, oh, I've got to learn to swear more. And I need like a greater lexiconry of swear words so that if I lose my language, I've got stuff to say. Well, we're not doing that on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Why teachers should swear? That's it. I've worked in education for so long, I taught myself not to. If I stub my toe, I say, oh, bother. Uh, my mum never swear. My mum never, never, ever heard her swear. And she's she, great because she taught me not to swear around her so I could always turn it on or off. <laughs> yeah. which was quite a good skill um so thank you for coming on the show today joanna thanks for having me i've um as i learned lots and enjoyed it i won't do a swearing thing i'll be sharing your contact that. details and you've also um mentioned the sensory being for sensory beings book so i'll share that link as well and you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to the podcast or on our website Thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website, which is www.thesendcast.com. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. On Facebook, we are The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. And thank you for listening to us. Um, and if you do listen to us through iTunes or Apple Podcast, please leave us a review and let others know what you think. And before we go, I would just like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website. You'll find a number of guests on the Sendcast, our speakers at our virtual Send conferences, or they have recorded their own training courses. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. 
And as always, as an exclusive gift to our Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye, everyone. Bye.